Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, as Pastor Ben Hartwig delivers his sermon titled, A New Life is This, Not That. in your Bibles. Our children can be dismissed if it wasn't all too obvious there. You can be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to give you a quick update just in case you didn't know uh, concerning the Hikis. Uh, maybe you haven't heard that. You probably have, but in case you haven't or if you are joining us on our live stream and, and haven't heard this, I, I do want to mention it. Um, the Hickeys made it to uh, to Scotland, uh, but uh, whenever they got there, the uh, uh, Tommy and Lauren, who were to pick them up, help them move in, and all that, they uh, the day before were uh, tested positive for COVID, and so they were quarantined. But whenever they uh, they were picked up by another van, brought to their place, and when they got there, there was many from the church standing out in front of their place in the cold and the rain to receive them, and uh, it uh, it was it was great. I communicated actually with Logan uh, this morning and uh, to uh, tell me, well, never mind. Uh, <laughs> moving on. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Now what we're going to do is we're looking at verses 25 through 32 is where we're looking, but we're going to back up to verse 17 because we kind of need to see what Paul did there. We've already been there, but it's been a little bit since we found ourselves in, in that portion. So um, we need to start at verse 17, and we will read through the end of the chapter. Verse 17, Paul writes there, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, verse 22. What are we doing? To put off your old self. So mark that. To put off your old self, because this has become, this is important as we go into verse 25. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And then, verse 24, to do what? To put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, Back up to verse 22. We're putting off, and then verse 24, we're putting on. And then we see that kind of uh, fleshed out there in verses 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, so we have put off something, now we're going to put on something. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor." 
doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ in God forgave you. Let's pray and ask God for help. Uh, Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you for forgiveness. And we thank you, Father, that there is now that which is new in the heart in the heart of stone that you have replaced with the heart that is malleable, Father, that is there to be shaped and uh, is to serve you. And Father, not that we just simply stop doing something. Father, that is incomplete, but it's that we stop doing something and we start doing something new. And uh, Father, that is in service to you for your glory and your purpose, your honor, your praise. And uh, Father, help us as we find our way through this passage, help us to see clearly, help, uh, help folks see things clearly that I have, uh, that I have missed. Um, Father, help us to apply this in a very practical way as we go out in service to you. We thank you for it. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what is then actual reliable evidence that someone has been saved? Is it that they've been baptized? Well, I was baptized in, I was baptized in 1997, so therefore I'm good. Is it that I was in a revival meeting? I was in a tent revival one time and uh, whenever the evangelist said, every head bowed, every eye closed, and if you want to accept Jesus into your heart, slip your hand up and, oh, there's one, oh, there's one. You know how, if you've ever done that, you know how this goes. Or is it that, you know, at one time I have uh, prayed to receive Christ and I might even be able to give you the date. I can tell you, October of 1997, I just gave you the date. That's whenever I was born again. I could do that. So if I point to that, is that evidence that I am indeed saved? Well, I hope that after reading this passage and then asking those questions, you say, well, no, that's, that's not it. Right. All those things are, are those things are not bad. You should pray and ask Jesus to save you. Right. You should follow him in baptism. Right. You should do those things. But saying that I have done that, is that the evidence that I am indeed born again? Well, it's not just simply the past experience of, well, I received Christ in October of 1997. There is evidence of, as I read this passage, and Paul is writing to, because remember, what do we say? That, you know, Paul's writing to the Ephesians, of which we have no uh, explicit purpose, explicit occasion is what theologians like to say whenever they explain it in the, in the first part in your study Bibles, uh, you know, the purpose and occasion of this writing. Well, the purpose and occasion of this writing is not clear, right? And so it's encouragement. It is to take them further. It is to take them on deeper. And so what we recognize is that as we read this, it is evidence, if you are born again, it is evidence that your life does indeed reflect Christ, right? The key verse that I think applies here is uh, 1 John 2, 4. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. It's clear. 
right? Doesn't leave much for speculation, and the truth is not in him. So to say it very simply, if I say that I am saved and I keep on sinning as I always have, I'm a liar. Now, does this mean I'm perfect? We're not teaching perfection, right? There, there's groups that do that. They teach you, well, on this earth, in this life, we can and will be perfect, but that can't happen here, right? Because we're still here. We're still in this life. We're not going to be perfect while we're here, but something is indeed different. Something is going to change. And so in this passage previously, which I read the first part of there from 17 to 24, and in the passage uh, previously, we talked about the off with the old and on with the new. Because as you go down through this and you read this, be angry and do not sin. Just put a period there, right? That's a sentence. You could just stop there, right? Now, Paul doesn't, he doesn't use periods very often, right? He, he likes to keep talking. And the next verse there in verse, uh, or the couple verses down, let the thief no longer steal, period. You could have stopped there. And, 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 and you could have said, this is what, repentance looks like because I could say if I'm a thief and and I could say well I'm going to stop stealing period right that's not what this looks like though we had said it is off with the old on with the new new creatures act like new creatures this is not however we have to be careful uh, this is not to be boiled down to a list of do's and don'ts I'm going to do this I'm not going to do this Becoming new isn't a progression, although you will grow progressively, right? When I'm new, I'm new. But then after that, I am indeed progressing. So, with that said, after a person is saved, we don't, we also, we don't become robots. We aren't like uh, the marionette being danced around by a puppet master, right? We're not just responding to some divine stimuli here that, uh, uh, to where we act as robots. Uh, he does, however, command us in the spirit and uh, we are to subdue that humanness. We are to subdue that flesh, the flesh that we had spoke about previously, which still does reside in us. It is still there. It is a struggle. And we live as new creatures then in submission to a new master. We have a new master and we live in submission to that master. God's sovereignty, our responsibility, right? That thing we talk about that is can be kind of a mystery, but it does work here. And uh, if we are indeed a faithful believer, we will respond positively to God's sovereign declarations and his commands. Again, that doesn't mean perfection. That doesn't mean I respond to his declarations and commands with perfection because, but what it should mean is it should mean that I see those commands, I see those declarations, and I do respond to them in a positive way of joy, that I can see them now. I see them differently than I did before. So up to this point in Ephesians, Paul has made it clear who we are in Christ. That phrase in Christ is important as you go through in Ephesians. Again, that's what he's doing with the folks at Ephesus. He is teaching them and showing them who they are, taking them deeper, who you are in Christ. And then here in chapter four, we get the switch to that which is very, very practical. And that's what he's doing here. It's not just that you stop being a thief. You just don't stop stealing cars, right? We display the lifestyle of who we are as a new creature in this very practical instruction in chapter 4. 
that has commands contrast between the old life and the new. Things have changed. Just Friday night, uh, Teresa and I had to, uh, we had to, she had to take some clients out and, and we were talking and, and we didn't really know these folks. And, and so she, she knows the, the one, but uh, I didn't know them and we're talking. We didn't know uh, his wife and, and you know, you talk about how you met and, and, and you know, how you got married and how long you've been married and on and on and on. And, and we, they had known each other in high school, Teresa and I did not. And I made the comment that I am glad that Teresa did not know me in high school, right? And, and that's for real. I'm, I'm, I, I wish nobody did, to be honest. You know, that which is old is thankfully gone. Now there is something indeed new and something should change. And this change should be dramatic, right? Because we're talking about death to life. We're talking about death to life, so it should be dramatic. So the passage, in a very practical way, shows the change that is to occur in this new creature. The argument is implied that if this doesn't take place, if this isn't there, then the person is very likely not a believer. Now, we should notice, and we want to we want to say because we don't want to if. We don't want to get trapped in some kind of list, right? We don't want to get trapped in those legalistic lists that say we have to do this and we can't do this and, we, and we're checking the boxes to say, I'm looking to the list to see that I'm good, a, a, good, a great person, not to godliness, not to holiness, not to Christ, but I look to the list. We got to be careful of that because we know that right now we're not perfect and we're not going to be perfect this side of glory, right? And so you take Paul, when you see Paul in other places and he mentions elsewhere, I can over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just real quick, there is a difference because in, in who we are fundamentally now, right? In, in, uh, in, in, in verse 9 of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, what's he say? Do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, will not, I'm sorry, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Nearly the, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These, these are people and this is who they are, right? That's, that's the way that he's speaking as a practice in their life. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. There is a difference, yes, between telling a lie and being a liar. There is a difference. Do not take that statement and go tell a lie and say, well, preacher said I could lie and I'm okay. That's not what we're saying. However, there is a difference, right? There is a difference. And he's talking about very specific people there in who they are. There's some people that we know cannot tell the truth to save their life, right? We know that. But we see something different going on here. And that's he goes into this uh, liar to truth teller, right? Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth which his neighbor, for we, uh, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So as kind of an intro to these changes, what we have to realize, every unbeliever, every person unredeemed is the previous, the liar, murderer, etc., in some capacity. Because, you know, I say murderer and I... Show of hands, has anybody in here murdered anyone? Probably not, right? But we know what Jesus says. 
We know what Jesus says about anger that we'll get to here in a minute. We know what Jesus says about anger and equates that to murder, right? Because of our heart, because of what's in the heart. And so in some capacity, every unbeliever in some capacity are these things. And now we are to be the latter of what's of what he says, you know, whenever he says you were this, now you're this. Now we're to be the latter in some capacity, some growing capacity. We're supposed to be in some growing capacity, a truth teller now, right? The spur, first specific command, not suggestion, command for the new walk is that we are to go from lying to telling the truth. Liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's he says that, right? We recognize that. We are to be truth tellers. The Bible makes this crystal clear. Uh, for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral person and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. We live in a culture where lying is not a big deal. Look at the list. Unbelieving and abominable murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers and idolaters. And liars. Apparently, lying is a big deal. God hates lies, right? It is a big deal. You know, I've always have told my children since they were tiny that, you know, you can get in trouble for some stuff and you can do some stupid stuff and you can get in trouble for things. But if you lie and I catch you lying, we got a big problem, right? I do not like to be lied to. I am not holy. God is holy. Think how bad he hates it, right? It's a big deal. It's a, this is a list I don't want to be on with idolaters and sorcerers and liars. Their part will be in the, lake of the in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, Revelation 21 and verse 8. Now, we know that a believer, Paul is writing to the church, right? He is writing to what is vast majority of folks are believers. A believer can fall into a lie, can tell a lie, can tell a, a little white lie, as it's often called, because we like to minimize these things and make them not as big of a deal. But again, if there is a habitual flow of lies, right, that proceeds from the heart that is looking to deceive... That person does not have a biblical basis for believing that they are a Christian. If I continually lie as a regular part of my daily living, I am a child of Satan. I'm not a child of God, right? It's the father of lies. Satan lies about everything to the point that our entire civilization, our culture is built on lies, right? We have a, a, a civilization built upon lies. Religion uh, created by humans is built on lies. Thus it is satanic. You look back to the fall, right? Adam and Eve, you fast forward to now. And what you see is the commonality of the unregenerate is lies. One uh, politician one time said with all the lying going on, his statement was truth is treason in the empire of lies. Our society has become dependent on lying. And if the unredeemed suddenly turn to telling the truth, the world may likely collapse the way it is. The world structure, right? This is no reason not to tell the truth, but that we have a whole framework built upon lies. If world leaders started telling each other the truth, World War III might ensue. 
Lies, piled on lies, organizations, businesses, economic, social orders, governments, treaties built on lies. Why? Because this is a wicked world system and it thrives on this and it is evil. This has to, we have to, it is for us to tell the truth. Additionally, for us as individuals, lying is more than just a falsehood. We want to say that lying is something like, you know, when you look at a, a basketball roster, you know, I'm six foot tall and it lists me as six two, right? I look at the football roster, it lists me at 220 pounds and I'm 240, right? Is that lying? Yeah, that's lying. But we can take this out to all kinds of things. We call that exaggeration. It's lying, right? It's cheating in school. It's flattery for the purpose of manipulation. It's betraying somebody's confidence. We are not, we are not to have any part in this, right? We're not to have in any part of lying. If we're going to be free to do the work of the Lord, we have to be truth tellers. And of course, that starts with the gospel. We've left that dark domain of falsehood and we are in the domain of truth. And unlike the world, God's economy, that which really matters, is based on truth. We don't do something because we say, well, you know, it's what was best for business. It's what was best for business, so I had to tell a little white lie. It's not a big deal. No. If we are fit for Him, we are to live in truthfulness. We communicate correctly. It can be dangerous. It can be dangerous for all of us. You know, you think about your brain. What if your brain gave a false signal about hot and cold? Something as simple as that. You know, why is leprosy dangerous? Because it kills the nerves, right? It doesn't send me correct signals about pain. We speak the truth and we do it in love. And it begins again with the gospel. An edifying lifestyle is a lifestyle of truth, right? Then he goes into this issue of anger. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. We, we like to think that every time we as Christians are angry that we are doing it righteously. We like to call it righteous anger, right? Be very careful with this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The anger that is spoken of here since this momentary outward boiling over rage, which is, a, is another problem, obviously, uh, it, it, inward uh, resentment, uh, this is a deep-rooted, uh, determined conviction that is quite overwhelming. Anger in the New Testament is, a, is an emotion that can be good or bad. It could be either one, but it depends on the motive and the purpose of the anger, right? Uh, the command to be angry without sinning is an anger at evil. It's an anger at evil. It's an anger at injustice, anger at anything that goes against that which is godly and against God's will and purpose. You know, we think about things to be angry about. Abortion, right, is something that we can be angry about. Um, children being kidnapped and, and, and sold into human trafficking is something to be angry about. Josh mentioned, uh, you know, the, an orphanage where you age out at five years old. I mean... It's bad enough to age a child out at 14 years old, right? That's awful. Um, five years old. Imagine that. I, I mean, that angered me whenever I heard that. I don't know what to do with that, but I, I just, I'm thinking, you know, here you usher a child out to the street and you say, that's it. The anger that Paul is talking about here is, is not 
you know, that my team lost and I throw the remote through the television screen. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. This is an anger that hates injustice, hates immorality and ungodliness of all kinds. And of course, just like anything else, when we look at the perfect representation of what anger should look like, we look towards Christ, right? Jesus expressed righteous anger at the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees that uh, resented his healing a man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. Then, of course, that often used example of whenever Jesus uh, turned the tables over of the money changers, driving them out of the temple. We, I think it's clear that uh, we, we would understand that he didn't do that with a smile on his face, giggling about it, that none of this happened. Uh, and then we see, if you've been here as we've been going through Galatians, uh, you see Paul at the beginning of Galatians. He's hangry. He's angry because they have twisted and contorted the gospel into something that is not the gospel at all. It's worth getting angry about because it is ungodly. So, on the other hand, if we are born again, and, and before we're born again, we, uh, we display the anger that we display as sin before we're saved. It's self-defensive. That anger is self-serving. It's the anger that leads to the equivalent of murder, right? Because it leads to hatred. Hatred is indeed murder. That's according to Christ. He, he makes those things equivalent and it takes us to God's judgment. The anger that we must fight against is that selfish, undisciplined, vindictive anger that has no place even for a short time in the life of a believer. However, anger that is unselfish and based on the love of God and the concern for others like the unborn, like little girls that are traded around. Um, it, that kind of, of, of anger is something that's focused. It doesn't lash out. It has an anger with a purpose, right? That wants to do something. It's not just permitted, that's commanded, right? But this must be handled with care because we have to become we have to be careful that we don't become bitter, that we don't become resentful. We deal with this and we move forward with it, doing what needs to be done to glorify God. You know, we're told not to take it to bed with us, right? You're told by your marriage counselor, who, your, your pastor who married you, whatever it was, they said, you know, don't ever go to bed angry, right? Well, that, there's, there's truth to that, right? It's right here, that we don't do that. We don't take that with us. And so he goes on then to this, um, radical change of being a thief to a giver. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Again, we don't stop here, right? He just doesn't, repentance isn't just to put a period at the end of this sentence of let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Again, he doesn't stop there. It's not just a labor to do work with my own hands and now instead of stealing something to sell it to get food, I'm going to, it's got another purpose here. It's so that I can share with somebody in need. This isn't just about me, right? This is something more. If you read the account, which I'm going to read a portion of this in Augustine's Confessions, uh, where he uh, tore through the uh, peach orchard. I don't know if anybody's read this. If you are a big dork like me and Josh, you do know this story um, because of the understanding that Augustine had of sin and, and his own sin 
And as he looked back and saw these things, he didn't steal the peaches because he was hungry, right? Beyond question, this is Augustine out of Augustine's Confessions. Beyond question, theft is punished by your law, O Lord, and by the law written in human hearts, which not even sin itself can erase. For does any thief tolerate being robbed by another thief, even if he is rich and the other is driven by want? I was under no compulsion of need. He didn't need this. Unless a lack of moral sense can count as need and a loathing for justice and a greedy, full-fed full fed love of sin. Yet I wanted to steal, and steal I did. I already had plenty of what I stole, and of much better quality, too. That's important. He just says, I had plenty of this, and they were better than what I stole. And I had no desire to enjoy it when I resolved to steal it. I simply wanted to enjoy the theft for its own sake and the sin. Close to our vineyard, there was a pear tree laden with fruit. This fruit was not enticing, either in appearance or in flavor. We nasty lads went there to shake down the fruit and carry it off at the dead of night after prolonging our games out of doors until that late hour, according to our abominable custom. We took enormous quantities, not to feast on ourselves, but perhaps to throw to the pigs. We did eat a few, but that was not our motive. We derived pleasure from the deed simply because it was forbidden. Look upon my heart, O God. Look upon this heart of mine on which you took pity in its abysmal depths. Enable my heart to tell you now what it was seeking in this action which made me bad for no reason, in which there was no motive for my malice except malice. The malice was loathsome, and I loved it. I was in love with my own ruin, in love with decay, not with the thing for which I was falling into decay, but for decay itself. For I was depraved in soul, and I leapt down from your strong support into destruction, hungering not for some advantage to be gained by the foul deed, but for the foulness of it. If I don't think that I am messed up, I am an idiot. I mean, just to be real frank about it. Because this is me, right? This is, this is us. He didn't do it because he was hungry. He did it because he was bad. Thieves. It's what we are before Christ. Now, every one of you, nobody in here stolen a car. Show of hands. Anybody stole a car? Well, you are sitting before a car thief. Me and a buddy of mine stole a car. It was his car. Okay. But he took the car of which he had no license to drive. This complete moron probably could have killed us both. Now, if you were listening closely there, you see what I just did. I refer to him as the moron, not the complete moron that got in the car with him. Why did we do this? We had no place to go. We had no purpose. There was nothing. This was simply for the sake of being bad. How stupid is that? But see, that's sin, right? It's illogical, completely illogical, completely moronic. That's who we are before Christ, right? 
we have to stop the thievery. But it's not just to stop the thievery. It's to now be givers. We go from stealing to sharing. What a dramatic change that is. As unredeemed people who have no time for the crucifixion of the Lord, have no time for the resurrection. We all have the temptation to steal. And we can take this out to greed, but often it's not even about greed. Greed's a whole separate thing. I mean, we can get into that. We're not going to, but that's a problem. As Augustine, though, many children go through phases. We just think it's just fun to steal just for the sake of stealing something, not because they want it. Years ago, when we lived in St. Minder, there was these two little kids. They were brother and sister. Uh, these children, they may as well not have had parents. It was a very sad situation. And um, I don't know if, if, if somehow they wanted to do something for us after we had found one of them uh, drinking milk out of a bowl on our sidewalk that was left for a cat. Um, Teresa or Tori left milk for this wretched cat. Uh, wasn't me, but there was milk out here on the sidewalk left for the cat. But one of these children come up, I saw at the window, she comes up and she drinks the milk out of the bowl. These kids were hungry, right? We see this and, you know, Teresa makes sandwich in tears and, and we're, we're giving these, these kids some food and, and, you know, try to show them some love, right? I don't know if it's the next day or a couple days later, but the little girl comes to the house with a handful of selective service documents. You remember this? You don't remember this? She comes to the door with a handful of selective service. Where in the world does this come from? She stole these for me, right? Well, next door was the post office and, and the post office was closed, but the, the, the door was open so you could get to your box and you know, they had all those things on the wall. They have selective service documents there that I, for whatever reason, but she, she just took these and this was a even whenever we think we're doing a good thing like she did, what was she doing? She didn't know any different, but that's part of the point, right? There's a fleshly attraction to these things, getting by with stuff. We are to steal, no longer stealing, like lying. This is the way our world run runs, right? And again, we can get into issues of greed and all this, but in some large stores, a third of the price that we pay accounts for theft, much of it by employees, because uh, they're misreporting, because the company may owe me something is the way, way that I feel. I overestimate, I report more hours than I actually work. Um, does well, I'm just worth way more than what they pay me. I overstayed an expense account. Know a guy that did that one time and got busted doing it, took a bunch of cab receipts and turned those in to, to get some more money out of expense account. Um, I mean, this isn't just grand larceny we're talking about, right? This is little stuff. It's taking money out of a parent's wallet or something like this, not paying your bills, putting in your pocket. You know, the, 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 the girl gives you too much change back and you look and it's too much. Well, it's she did it, not me, and I pocket that. Stealing, right? What's the answer? Well, the answer is to work. That's what he says. This is the first thing he says. Not only... Um, do you avoid the sinful act? But in Christ, based upon what we previously talked about before, who you are in Christ, the way Paul puts it, you can labor. But why? Again, doesn't stop with just labor. It's to share with one who has a need. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. If you don't provide for your household, 1 Timothy, you're worse than an unbeliever. And that labor should be in something that is good and honest, right? Being responsible helping others in a benevolent way. Again, we don't, you know, we can get in that of enabling laziness, right? We can get in that whole conversation, but 
we're talking about it's due to devastation, it's due to inability, it could be due to many things. You know, we mentioned the Hikis, you know, we have a great opportunity to help them. What are they doing? They're going out, they are working in the gospel. They're going to be working very, very hard in what they're doing. They're going to be facing some, some very difficult situations. So what can we do? We can help them. They have a need and it's our opportunity, it's our privilege, frankly, to be able to help them and be a part of that. And when you earn more, guess what you can do? You can give more. Is it a problem to make lots and lots of money? It can be, but it may not be too, if done rightly. Your occupation should not be seen as career building. You may do that, and that's not an awful thing. It can be, lots of things can be awful things. But it's not just simply to be seen as career building. It is service to God and others. If I've given more opportunities, if I've given more of, of, a, of a place of, call it importance for lack of a better term in, in, in my career that has given me more opportunity that has given me opportunities a different opportunity to serve God and serve others I still use it for God's purposes I don't care if you make five dollars an hour or a half a million dollars a year you use it for him and for his purpose first then he goes into this issue of speech verse 29 let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you are indeed a believer, then along with everything else, your speech should be transformed. Corrupting, unwholesome talk here. Um, this was a word that was used of rotten food. Rotten food. Um, Foul language, you know, like whenever somebody says, do you kiss your mama with that mouth, right? I've heard that before. Hope you don't hear it very often, but you may have heard that before. Foul language should not come out of the mouth that has also asked Jesus Christ to save them, right? And whenever we think of, do you kiss your mama with that mouth? Mama's not holy. Might have thought she was, but she's not. God is holy, right? It's a big difference big difference. If anything is out of character for the one who believes and claims to identify with a crucified and risen Savior, it's unwholesome talk. It's more repulsive than the spoiled meat that the word is normally used for. What is this? Well, nasty jokes, profanity, nasty stories, vulgarity. Shouldn't, that shouldn't come out of the face, right? It just shouldn't. You can read much of this in James chapter 3. I'm not going to expound on James chapter 3. If I don't convince you of this, James surely will. But filthy language is what? It's an indicator of what's in here, right? What comes out of the face, what comes out of the mouth, this is an excellent indicator of what's in the heart. What is in the heart eventually finds its way out of the mouth for the good and for the bad, right? The child of God should have encouraging things to say, it should be that which is for building up. This also means that it's corrective, done in a edifying, loving way, right spirit. We don't seek to harm. We don't say things that don't need to be said. Sometimes things are best left unsaid. Sometimes it is good to keep our mouth shut. There is something to be said for a person that does more listening sometimes than talking, but we're told, be edifying be building up. The edifying lifestyle is one that's building up. It is not often taken well whenever we tell people of their sin. Maybe I don't take it well when somebody tells me of my sin, but it is the gracious thing for us to do. 
Again, right purpose and right spirit. We don't grieve. We don't seek to grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, you think of when your children sin, right? When you see your children sin, whether it be a three-year-old child or a 25-year-old child. You know, if you're older and your ch children are older and you see your older children sin or younger, think about how heartbreaking that is to you, right? It breaks your heart whenever you see that happen. It's, it's terribly, it grieves you. Again, you're not holy. Think what this does concerning the Holy Spirit whenever I sin, how it grieves the Holy Spirit because He's holy. How dare we grieve the one that has done so much for us when His mark of authenticity is on us. And now I'm going to grieve Him. He's secured us. Again, we've got to be careful. We don't avoid sin to quote-unquote keep the salvation, right? It's not why we're avoiding sin. We're avoiding it out of obedience and holiness and love for God. We avoid it because the Holy Spirit has made it, if He has indeed saved us, we aren't going to lose that which we already have, that He has given us. He, but then He takes this in verses 31 and 32, and He moves from the natural to the spiritual, the vice to virtue, and kind of restates uh, everything again. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. A statement that should be somewhat obvious after what we've just read, right? Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Instead of all that bitterness and wrath and anger and malice and all that, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. Again, remember, we have to constantly remind, this is written to the church, right? This is written to believers, people that are indeed supposedly believers. And what we have when we have man, right? We have man's natural tendency to sin. And sin left unrepented will grow into greater sin. A Christian sin will do that too, right? It will get, if it, if it is allowed to, it will grow and it leads to malice, evil. It's the root of all these vices, right? Put them away from you. And what happens, though, if such sins are allowed to flourish in the church? Again, who he's writing to, the church at Ephesus, the church here at Ferdinand, right? If, if sins are allowed to flourish in the church, what does it do? It brings reproach to Christ. It brings reproach to the church. It comes between believer and believer. And sometimes that can be really stupid stuff, right? These are sins that destroy relationships. They can destroy entire fellowships and they will weaken the church. And it destroys the testimony of the church. We don't resist the gospel. We don't resist its claims. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. God did not love you. God did not choose you. God did not redeem you because you deserved it, right? I mean, often that's the way that we, we handle forgiveness, right? I'll forgive them when they deserve it. I'll forgive them when they do whatever. You know, I, I make my list of demands that you have to do before I provide you with forgiveness. If God did that, we would have no hope. We would indeed be hopeless. It's because He is gracious. We have to observe that graciousness and learn from that graciousness. And again, how much more should we be ready to forgive because I can't be as offended as God is because, again, I am not holy. It's hard. 
whenever you come to a, a greater understanding of sin as you as you grow and as you learn um, and and as and we often say as you as you grow as a believer and, and you should be committing less sin you your sin grieve the, the 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 littler sin that you commit as you grow grieves you more because you understand it more you know as you read what Augustine says you see this is a guy that has an understanding of sin but you also see the grief that he has over this now that he didn't have and that's what happens. And when we understand sin and we see the worst in people, but we didn't have the wrath poured out on us because of the cross, right? Once we get an understanding of that, we see that that wrath that wasn't poured out on us was poured out on Christ on the cross. And so what, what, what must we do? We must be gracious. We must be compassionate. We must be forgiving. If not, we will be chastised for such a wicked attitude compared to the cross. All offenses against me are beyond small compared to the cross and, and, and frankly just insignificant. I, I need to be able to forgive. I need to be able to be gracious because of that. Because all of that, anything that, that, that you would possibly do to me, I have to be able to forgive because it is indeed significant compared to the cross. Christ had the Father's wrath poured out on Him because of me. Right? And the Holy Christ forgave me. So I surely can forgive you and surely you can forgive me if I am stupid, which I have every ability to do. So this passage and this, this, this application, which is just, it doesn't really have to be drawn out, right? I mean, it's right there on the surface, but it should make it crystal clear to each and every one of us that uh, whether we're living as we ought or not, and whether if our claim to be a born again child of God is indeed valid. If you see these changes in you, if you see a change in you, praise the Lord. And then continue to build on these things. That's what Paul was writing to the, to, to the folks at Ephesus for. If you see these things in you, praise the Lord and continue to build on that, right? That's what he's, he's doing there. But if you don't, if you don't see these things in you, there's excellent news here, right? Because we can do this. We can repent. We can repent. And we can be made new. We can repent and be changed. The kingdom is at hand. The time is now, right? It's to repent and be changed. Repent and be made new. Walk in Christ. Live in Christ. Be forgiven in Christ. And again, this is not simply to somehow improve my life or improve my social situation or to improve society. Will they save society, improve society? It will. But that's not the purpose. That's not why we repent. And that's not why we trust Christ. We repent to escape hell. We repent to escape hell and, 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 and we cross into light to live with Him for eternity and to serve Him. And that's where Paul takes, and he just doesn't stop with, hey, just don't be angry. Hey, just don't steal. That's where he goes into, instead you serve Him. And you do it in joy and you're saved from sin, death, and hell to serve Him and to point glory to God. Let's pray. Father, again, we, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Father, for, Lord, you have taken us not just to stop, but you've taken us into the joy of service. It's not just that we've just to stop sinning, but you've taken us to the joy of serving Christ 
bringing others into the service of Christ, bringing glory to you, us having the privilege of getting to be a part of what you're doing in the world. And Lord, we, we thank you for that. We thank you for forgiveness, but it's for us to take this forgiveness not into uh, a list of rules, but to take this into godliness and growing and, and, and progressively taking this all the way to glory and getting to just live in the joy of a resurrected Savior. And uh, Father, we, we thank you. We praise you for it. And, and help us to do this rightly, help us to, to grow rightly, to do rightly, to be all the time aware and sensitive to what we are to be doing next and, uh, and just to be useful for you. We thank you for it. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND. Or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.